Welcome to Machine Learning. I built a program called Spell Ticker. You can find that on listensoftware.com. And you can try some of the other games I've built in Flutter. One thing I like about this game is that it isn't particularly um, challenging to the eye at first. It looks very simple. It has one thing that it's doing. But even with four-letter characters, or four-letter words, it, it's still challenging to um, get it right. Because I build it kind of like Flappy Birds. Um, Flappy Birds was this real simple game, but highly irritating. <laughs> or maybe it was challenging. That's what I would say, not irritating, because you wouldn't play something that's irritating. It's, it was challenging because um, the bird would fly too high, and then you would hit the column, or the bird would fly too low. And a lot of people were playing that game. Um, and, you know, there was complaints that the code wasn't written well. and, and uh, But yet, it was kind of this challenge to see what score you could get in Flappy Birds. And um, I had talked to a colleague, and I think he had got 120 or something points. And I'd only got like five, and I'm like, no way not possible um, but yeah you you have to memorize when to tap do the tap or quick taps and people just start talking about how to you know beat flappy birds and it got to be kind of this challenge well spell ticker isn't quite that hard um, but it it is challenging because you get like so many uh, passes over the ticker to get the word and then it moves on. You don't get penalized for not getting the word, but you don't get rewarded if you don't get it. So I guess that you can just keep passing until you see a word that you recognize and then type it in. Um, so I'd have to think about some more rules to add to it that would make it more challenging. But I wanted to make the, I, this part of my educational software that I'm building, and I wanted to make it fun. Um, so you, you know, if you type in the word, it says correct. You got the right word. If you if you go so many times it passes by, it'll say wrong. And, uh, I didn't want to have a you know a wrong counter on there. I could have definitely done that, but. Uh, it uses strings, okay? So the first uh, the first one was just to move the ticker symbol, and that's that was run that's done through a um, an animation controller. But then I needed a a controller to con uh, a stopwatch to manage my. Um, my countdown. So I have this countdown that's running, and everything is async or running in threads. 
And so it, it is actually kind of challenging when you program to threads because you're not waiting for anything. Everything is just happening in the stream. And so you're just picking up stuff off the stream. And so that's what I'm, I'm doing with. I have a, a, a event handler that the uh, stopwatch is calling, and uh, I'm calculating the seconds. And the way I do the seconds is as it hits that callback function, I, uh, I convert the milliseconds into seconds. And... So for when it does the countdown from 10, 9 to 1, when it hits 1, then I, I reset the stopwatch again. So you just have this constant start the stopwatch, and then when it gets down to 1, reset the stopwatch, and then start it again. And it's working great. So that's one of the things I like about Flutter is that you're thinking in terms of concrete things like stopwatches or key framing, like for example, the animation portion of the application where it's moving across the screen, it's using an animation. And I'll, and I'll create a um, YouTube that demonstrates the code and walks through it, so I'll provide that as a link also. But um, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in real time. And this is part of my my application is I could also connect this to things that are happening in a company in real time and having it displayed on a screen. Now, sometimes you start off with games as a way to understand how to build complex UI and then you migrate that into actual business application. Because I know the value of real-time data. Anytime you can get real-time data, you're getting a better process. Your goal should always be obtain real-time processing. One of the big problems with batch processing is state. You don't know what state it is, and because you have that uncertainty of state, you're in a constant dilemma um, as to whether or not you can trust the um, algorithm. And for that reason, uh, I... Uh, I like I like uh, st uh, state programming or real time programming. And Flutter gives you that kind of that real time feel in your animations. It's got a smooth uh, animator. You know the clock's changing, the second countdown's working, uh, my ticker symbols are working. So it's just nice. I think Signal R was an attempt to create something similar, um, but again, it's all written in JavaScript and HTML, whereas Flutter's written in components. And realistically, I think component technology is less verbose. 
um, are widgets. It's written in widgets. And once you understand widgets, they're really pretty useful. It's pretty easy to start building things. So how would you get started in Flutter? Real simple, just download uh, Visual Studio Code and uh, install your Flutter. You can go to the Flutter site, install it, and then start building applications immediately. There's so many tutorials uh, to do. And the way I would do it is there's one called uh, Flutter Recipes, a book called Flutter Recipes, real good book to um, look at kind of what, how to do things. If you're already a, a front-end developer in JavaScript, you've been caught in that world for a long time, uh, you're really going to like the widget technology in terms of organizing your, your uh, behaviors. And so that's what I would say you want to do when you start on these projects is say, just kind of outline what the UI is going to look like and then describe the behavior of your UI. Um, because building widgets is pretty easy in uh, Flutter, but it, uh, uh, it, uh, It, it's going to get even easier once someone starts to build a tool. And I thought about building a tool for Flutter and then marketing it, but uh, it it takes time. You have to you have to build all your GUIs. And I could actually build the tool in Flutter and then generate out a Windows application, almost like Visual Studio Code is built in uh, Angular and then uh, used like an application. And so you could do the exact same thing in Flutter. You could build your application that writes the Flutter code in Flutter because you can... Uh, compile to a Windows application. So it uses uh, C++ to build the Windows application. And so there's real power because now if you gain a good understanding of the language, then you can use that understanding to build reusable code. And that reusable code could come in the form of a tool. And if you can create that tool so that it increases productivity and decreases development time, people will use it. But it's always challenging because you know you 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 could you could say well why didn't Microsoft build a Flutter component? I don't know. That's still a mystery to me why they haven't done that. Especially when this is the replacement for XML. 
XML, uh, Xamarin, they're all too complex. Subclassing, independent, indi doing everything from uh, uh, dependency injection, etc. All too complex to use. Are they powerful? Yes, they are powerful. But are they complex? Yes, they're too complex to use. And so for that reason, um, Flutter will, will uh, overtake them. And so there will be a company that builds Flutter applications with a GUI interface so it's easy. You can imagine uh, the simplicity of, of having drag and drop with widgets, changing attributes on those widgets, and then having a reveal codes so you could actually see the Flutter code that the machine's generating or Dart code. And that's coming. My guess is the company that will do this will be Adobe. Just because you can create such amazing mobile applications in Flutter that are cross-platform. It goes across web. Um, you go across web, Windows, iOS, and Android. And they'll sell that package to developers, cross-platform development. See, they've tried to do this with their uh, phone gap. It was largely a failure in my mind. I used it. I didn't like the quality of the application. It looked kind of like a gimmick. And there was a lot of file constructors that I didn't understand at the time. I, I worked and worked on that, trying to get it to work, and never did. My brother-in-law did, and he got an application up and running, and it was a nice application. But it was really simple. What I want to build is complex applications in Flutter that have rich behaviors and are scalable that you can largely tell the machine what you want it to build, and it can build that behavior out for you and integrate into your data pipelines and adjust the interface behavior according to natural language processing. That's what I want. Now, what, what type of, how sophisticated would the software have to be in order to have that capability? Well, it, it would need to be sophisticated enough that it could generate its own code. It could correct its code to the new behavior. And it could interface to other classes until 
it was able to achieve the correct interface. But that's how programmers work. They take specification, they figure out how to do the mapping, they work to integrate the components. So we do somewhat of that complex work ourselves, and then we use our test to see if that behavior matches our expectations. And I see that that would be the pattern that the machine would also follow, is to match the expectations and then be able to write the code so that it's readable. But that's kind of been the, the introduction of the Python programming the NLP to Python programming. And it's been largely successful. The next ge generation is to invest into Flutter so that you can build these applications that are rich in behaviors and actions. So the logic and the interactions on the mobile devices are going to increase. The size of the applications are going to increase. Um, you know, I'm writing code that has, right now in Flutter, that has several pages. And I'm using complex object models the MVVM model for handling my interaction. But because Flutter can be segmented, I'm building little applications, little programs. And I haven't integrated the programs together, but I've been building these little educational programs. One for spelling, one for counting, one for multiplication. And I'm thinking of new ones, ones that use natural language processing to understand what the person's saying, and then doing some things with imaging because of Dolly, D-A-L-L-E, where you can tell the computer what you want it to create, and it'll create that image from its uh, network. So you say, I want a red bird, a red canary, a canary, and make its feathers white with a little bit of blue. So you get this white bird, white canary with a little bit of blue on its feathers. And it looks realistic. It looks like a real canary with a variation in mutation in its coloring from ordinary canaries. I think the real interesting thing about imaging is the sheer number of images that we, uh, we, we watch, look at. We have 
constant bombardment of media. It's almost like our brain now, the machine is competing for attention for, for our brain. How much of the day will we spend engaged in interactions with the machine? Now, we do this in business. We're looking at numbers. We're looking at diagrams. We're looking at charts. But we're really not interacting with those items, numbers, charts, data, that much. I mean, that's kind of the value of Power BI is to increase your interaction with the data. But Power BI is time-consuming to set up. You have to learn the DAX programming language. You have to learn the M programming language. You have to have a good understanding of data science. These, these are to do advanced things in Power BI. Um, I'm at the intermediate level right now working on my DataCamp career course in Power BI. And I'm starting to see some things that they have thrown in that were data science. Things like percent change. Things like volatility. Um, but they weren't really simple to implement. I think Python is still has the advantage in that it is simpler to implement. But you can run Power BI, or you can run Python within Power BI. And for that reason, there is a lot of uh, richness to the interface. So instead of using Seaborn, just use Power BI or just use Seaborn with Power BI. Put the Python graphs in your Power BI. Um, And so, you know, the world of data science is still in its beginning stages. Still takes a long time to set it, form your data. Still takes a long time to get it to a visualization level. Lots of money, lots of time. And we're talking big systems. Lots of data. Trying to find these really specific areas where they can leverage their understanding of the data. Areas like cell. And it becomes a challenge then to companies who realize that the data has value and so they're looking for people, engineers, that can work on teams to create pipelines 
from the data to the machine learning or AI so that analytics can be done on the data that have never been done before. And to find areas to improve in the company. I think the problem is is not that we, there isn't data. There's problem is, is how do you get that data to the people who are making decisions and put that data in the form that they can understand. If you if you say you had data and then you put it in this analytical form and it has all these very uh, statistical graphs and it's very busy, but it's telling you an incredible story about what's happening in your company but the language is in a language that business people can't understand, you've defeated yourself. How do you build the language such that business people can understand technical world of probability, classification, action, of anomalies. You know, there's some anomalies that happen in my work where I I realized that it was a problem with state. That things were happening at different times in the SQL Server because of triggers. And even though it was seems like an ecosystem that would make sense, the uh, behavior of the code in triggers is difficult to understand when things occur. And so you lose that sense of control over state. And that creates uncertainty. So I created a lot of graphs to, or data queries to try to understand at what point that state was changing and reflect that in a way that the business people could understand. So Again, there is this huge problem with data because data by itself is meaningless. You have to put it into a model and then that model um, must put it, be put into a language that is understandable by decision makers. And so that is the challenge of business intelligence. How do you get the data in a form that business people can make better decisions? Especially when they can avert 
catastrophes. They can have better communication and the information can be more accessible to workers. Um, and isn't that the pattern that we've followed up to this point with innovation, with Google, we can get information about things that we need now. But we don't have good natural language processing. I mean, that's what GPT-3 could have been. It's at least what I'm trying to propose on my website, List of Software Solutions, is using NLP to understand what the person wants and then developing a response to that. So I've been analyzing different topics and using NLP to assess certain assumptions and then talking about it and seeing what people think about those assumptions or conclusions. Because it's taking the probability of information that it's been trained on to figure out the probability of the outcome. And that's powerful. Because no one can read everything. And no one can know everything. And not even the machine can gather all the information. There's models out there with a trillion parameters. And I'm not sure if it's been trained on all the scientific material. And even if it were trained on all the scientific material, could it explain it to us? Or would it be using equations that would fill a whole gymnasium? that maybe you would spend 10 years studying all the equations to finally conclude that the machine was correct. Um, so what we would do is test the machine on what we know and see how it performs. Performs at 87%, performs at 95%, performs at 99%, performs at 99.9999999%. At what point then do we say it performs perfectly with all we know and the things that it knows, we have to assume that it's right because it's going beyond what we know. I think it's kind of interesting to watch these uh, UFO um, cases because they they try to do experiments on the UFOs and the UFOs respond to their experiments as if they are doing experiments back on them to see how they would react when they introduce things that are new into their environment. 
And, you know, if I didn't know any better, I would say that what we are seeing is AI from the future tech sent back through like a drone to observe because it's very strange how they operate. They don't operate like behaviorally. They seem to operate more instinctively. And so we feel feel like we are the mice in the labyrinth instead of the other way around. Uh, And then why is Utah getting caught in the center of it? Well, it just happens to be, according to this theory, that it's like some sort of energy collector. And that energy collector is why they're there and they're moving through wormhole or portal. And they can move a thousand feet per second, which is one third the speed of a bullet. Scientists said it was the speed of a bullet, but that's not true. Is one third of the speed of the ball. So we live in a time where we saw and heard the fantastic ideas of evolution, and now we are hearing the fantastic ideas of aliens and alien technology. But wouldn't you say AI is alien? I mean, it has to look alien. It has to behave alien. I mean, you look at the world-famous chess player who lost to IBM's machine. He said it was like playing against an alien intelligence. It was doing things that he couldn't see into or anticipate. And maybe he lost his confidence, and that's why he lost the game. Because we have to have that feeling that we're going to win sometimes to win. But yet, we're in the 20th century. Everything continues to move in a linear line. We go to work, come home, raise our family. We have children. We worship God. These things are stable in a very dynamic world that's changing. The realities around us are changing very quick. Now, we could have concrete homes that we live in. We could have plastic printed circuitry that we create. We could fabricate and print any blueprint at scale. We could have robots that build skyscrapers. We could have flying cars 
we can have nanotechnology that repairs biological defects. We could cure cancer. We don't have to live in a fear-driven world. And the next big thing will be energy. And so I've started to talk about it. I've looked at India. I've looked at Tata. I've seen his strategies. I've seen Rad Ten's Tata strategies. Industrialism. Nationalism. Big companies. Big is better. That's what Tata wants. More jobs through beginning bigger. But that's still the Chinese way. That's exactly what they did in 2000. Is they made the big push towards industrialism. They captured a large portion of the world's economy. And we owe them trillions of dollars. So we gave up our wealth. And in some ways fell into third world status. We're a superpower, but we behave and live like we're in the third world. Because our money is becoming less and less valuable due to high energy prices, high mortgage prices or real estate prices, and lower incomes. We're not keeping up with our incomes to the cost of living. And so for that reason, we are moving backwards into the third world country. And I've actually been thinking about other countries where the dollar still is strong enough to buy things, where you can live on a thousand dollars a month. I can't live on a thousand dollars a month. I cannot live on three thousand dollars a month. I am more around the five thousand dollar a month range now. And that used to be more than enough. Not today. Food is more expensive. Gas is more expensive. Travel is more expensive. In fact, we wouldn't. We didn't get to go out with our friends last night because we didn't have enough money. And I'm in high tech. So... These are the challenges of the 21st century, is how to survive in a world that is dynamic and where our money is worth less. So we're going to have to build things. We're going to need to build our own, grow our own food, generate our own electricity and innovate on how we're going to move. 
from place to place outside of gasoline. Fuel cells, electric, HHO. Those are the things that will offer us value in the near future. And at the same time, are we becoming better people, kinder? We've got to get over this social distancing attitudes and isolation and hostilities. And I'm not going to give the shoulds because that creates a barrier. But I'm going to say that those things don't work. 